0: In the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew writes that after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshiped him. Let's begin with prayer. Father God, we come into this place this morning because we are your worshipers. We worship you for the gift of life that we have received through the sacrifice of your son Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And we worship you, Lord, because we have received new life. We have become alive to God because of his resurrection from the dead which we celebrate today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. With that reading, we begin the first of four gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Each of them is essentially the same. They speak of the empty tomb, the appearance of the angels, the terrified soldiers, the confused women and the incredulous disciples. But all four of them have essentially the same message, even almost the exact same wording, that the angel's declaring he is not here, he has risen. In essence, that he is no longer dead, but he is now alive again. Nevertheless, as that message began to flow back to the apostles, they remained incredulous. Luke tells us in his account, he said, They had told them all these things to the eleven, but they did not believe them. Their words seemed to them like nonsense. Mark expands where he tells us, when they heard that Jesus was alive, they did not believe it. And afterward, Jesus appeared alive to two of them while they were walking in the country. But he goes on, they did not believe them either. Later Jesus appeared alive to the eleven and He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe that He had risen, that He was alive. It's a different portrait that we often get in our mind of the apostles. We see them as these people who are rather readily and anxiously responding to the message that he's risen. We kind of assume that they weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer, they were primitive people from an ancient time who lacked sophistication like you and I and so therefore we assume that they just apishly believe what they were told and yet we find that the response is very much like yours and mine. I mean, somebody comes to you and tells you that someone who was formerly dead is now alive and walking around, your normal response is to say, that's not possible, that's not reasonable, that's not logical. I mean, I've done a lot of funerals, and I've seen a lot of people who are not just mostly dead, as Billy Crystal said, they're completely dead, they're totally dead, and I've never seen any of them show up at the market the next day and say, would you reach that bag for me? It's just never happened. And so because that's our life experience, we would expect that we would be incredulous just as they were kind of incredulous. But all that changed when it says that on that evening after his resurrection, that he appeared to them and he invited them to touch his hands and to look at his feet, to put their fingers in the places where the nail holes had been driven, both in his hands and his feet and in his side. And suddenly they began the process actually of believing. They began to go through that mental transformation where it was no longer too good to be true to be something that was literally true and transforming in their life. The question that often would come to me as I'd read this is why were they so reluctant to believe? And I think there are three rather obvious reasons why they were reluctant. Number one, as I said before, dead men don't come back to life especially after the kind of vicious and violent death that, that Jesus went through, uh, if you've studied what took place as in the crucifixion process, not just the event, but the whole process as Mel Gibson seemed to display very well in the movie The Passion of the Christ, you begin to realize that literally not only is a person beaten to a pulp, but it's a lot like beating a dead horse. It's beyond dead. There's nothing left to respond So it defies logic that one would come back from the dead. secondly, these men and women were terrified. I mean, they were followers of Jesus, and at this moment, becoming a follower of Jesus was very dangerous. I mean, he had been convicted of insurrection, of rebellion against Rome was the official indictment an official explanation for crucifixion. It was one of only two reasons why a governor could crucify someone. And so suddenly he is the leader of a band of outlaws who themselves are deserving and obviously could very likely be the targets of execution. They feared that what happened to Jesus would soon happen to them. And not just death, but the terror of the kind of death. And one of the things we know about being terrified, the terror tends to block the mind's ability to think things through simply and clearly and logically. The, the mind races and confusion reigns and Really, there's only one response that we really want to yield to, and that's to run and to hide, which interestingly is exactly what we find these men and women doing. They're in the upper room, the doors are locked, the windows are shuttered, I'm sure they probably had secret knocks, they must have had secret passwords, because they never knew who was coming to get them, and if the person at the door was a friend or a foe. But there's a third emotional dynamic here at work. Solomon kind of put it this way in Proverbs 13, 12. He said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, when we go through severe disappointment, the kind of disappointment that leads to disillusionment, that the heart actually goes through its own kind of sickness, sickness. We might call it a depression, but it's more than that. It's a a hopelessness, it's a despondency, it's a despair. And for those of us who have gone through that emotion, and there are far more many of us here in this room than would admit it, but for those who have had that emotional experience, we felt that utter bottomless hopelessness, that despairing of any answer or solution or way out. There's a despondency, a cloud of darkness that settles in around you it's not easy to get back from that place. Sometimes we very insensitively say to a person in that condition, well, you need to snap out of it, you know, slap on the face a couple of times and get them thinking straight. And you have no idea for that person that actually <laughs> they're probably incapable of getting themselves out of that place. What I'm saying to you is that's the place that these were men, men and women were in. Why were they so despondent? Was it just simply because they loved Jesus or somebody they admired had died? It was so much more than that. As later on we're told in Luke 24-21, they said, we had hoped that He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, literally we had put our trust, we had invested ourselves totally, mentally, emotionally, physically, We had invested ourselves in Him being the answer to everything that was wrong and broken and missing and lacking in our world. And suddenly He's gone. Now, there's a certain irony to this. You have to understand that for the previous six months, Jesus repeatedly told them, as we read in Mark 9, He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and after three days, He will live. After three days, He will be alive. He didn't just tell them once. He told them this over and over again for a period of about six months. So you think they would have got it. But as any mother knows how many times you have to say to your kids, how many times have I told you? It's kind of like that. I mean, you know, my wife often asks me, are you listening? Did you hear what I say? And I lie, I say, yes. (laughs) And then she pushes it and says, so what did I say? Well, you said, you know, it's not, hey, look at a UFO. You know, it's like, it's, It wasn't that they didn't hear it and it wasn't that they couldn't hear it, but they didn't want to hear what he is saying. And the reason they didn't want to hear it was because they had other plans. Peter reveals it when he, when Jesus tells them this at one occasion, he responds by saying that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. But one thing we know about Peter, he wasn't a prophet, right? <laughs> but why couldn't they hear it? Because as I said, they had other plans. For three and a half years, they literally, as Peter himself said, we have left everything to follow you. We have divested ourselves. We have walked away from families, from homes, possessions, professions, careers, friendships, opportunities, Everything that a man would say, this is what my future holds. We decided to let all of that go and to follow you where you would lead us, so that when you come into your kingdom, they said, we will be there with you. That when we come to your kingdom, who will sit on your right hand and on your left hand and rule with you? You see, They were part of the Jewish messianic vision for the future in that day that a Messiah would come, he would drive out the Romans, he would rectify everything that was wrong, he would set up a kingdom upon the earth and he would reign on the earth for a thousand years and everything would be wonderful and beautiful. And here these 12 guys said, we see this rising star who's going to take over everything and be numero uno in the world and we're his right hand men so that when you come to that place of exaltation, we'll be on your right and on your left. They clung to it more tightly than a hot stock tip. It was so, had become so invasive into their very relationshipal dynamics that later on, as Jesus is sitting with them in the upper room and he's breaking the bread, and he tells them yet again, one of you who is sitting here is going to betray me, And afterwards they walk out of that conversation, away from that meal, away from that amazing moment that they just had with Jesus. And Luke tells us a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. The word translated dispute here literally, it's a word in Greek that literally means that they were aggressively, competitively arguing. They saw the moment coming and they're jockeying for position like they had never ever jockeyed for position. They were going to be in the place to catch the rebound in the last 10 seconds. Oh, that's excuse me, I'm going someplace else. But (laughs) They're ready. They're boxing it out, man. They're ready to grab the ball and be the winner. And Jesus turns to them and says, my paraphrase, You guys still don't get it, do you? You still don't get it. The one who's going to be greatest in my kingdom is going to be the one who is the least, the servant, the lowliest, the last. They had gone from the moment of his greatest glory where the throngs of the crowds had been declaring him the son of David. Declaring him to be the future king of Israel to less than a week later, he is now dead. They've gone from the pinnacle to the pit. They've, become, they've gone from being future princes to being really nothing else but perps on the run from the authorities. The cheering crowds had become the cursing crowds and literally the bottom to their entire life had fallen out. Now, I know we'd love to fantasize that they were more altruistic in that, that somehow they were driven by some pure divine or religious or spiritual motivation, but they weren't because they're not any different than you and I. We always operate from that perspective, what's in it for me? Where's the payoff? It's what drives us in life. We may gild it by saying it's our philosophy of life or we're looking for our, our appointed purpose in life and what is the meaning of life. But the reality is we're just looking for that one thing that causes everything to come together so that you and I can live our lives happily ever after. It reminds me of that movie in the 1991 it was. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Many of you weren't even born yet. The movie City Slickers, I don't know if you remember that. Jack Palance played the role of Curly, this crusty, rugged, old, hard-beaten cowboy who's taking these city slickers out on a trail drive with a cattle. Billy Crystal, who plays this guy, Mitch, who is lost and looking for himself. And as he and Curly are riding along one day, and he's asking Curly all these deep philosophical questions. Curly looks at him and says, "Do you know what the secret of life is?" He goes, "No." What? Jack Palance holds up a finger, and Billy Crystal says, "Your finger." (laughs) He says, "No. It's one thing. And if you figure out what that one thing is, all the rest of the caca doesn't matter." That wasn't what he used in the movie. But anyway, nothing else matters. And so Billy Crystal looks at him and says, well, what's that one thing? And he said, well, that's what you've got to figure out. Deep philosophical conversation, and then Curly goes and lays down for the night and dies. (laughs) I think in that moment, Curly found out. (laughs) But you see, this is kind of the way life is. Bob Dylan in one of his songs put it this way, he says, most of the time I'm halfway content, most of the time. I'm halfway content. Now I look at Bob Dylan, probably the greatest poet of the 20th century in my opinion, certainly one of the most successful musicians, songwriters in the history of the planet, and he's content half of the time, most of the time. Why? Why? Dave Roper put it really well. He said, There's always that elusive something more. Oh, there are serendipitous occasions along the way, capricious moments when we experience pure delight. But those moments are fleeting, and we can neither capture the sensation nor repeat it. The feeling is gone, and we just can't get it back. And then he adds, pleasure only shelves our dissatisfaction. It doesn't remove it. Pleasure only shelves our dissatisfaction. It doesn't remove it. That's why these men were following Jesus. They they had a constant gnawing hunger and thirst that was of the soul yearning for something more. As Roper put it, something familiar and yet at the same time, very far away. The one thing that will turn us into satisfied, self-assured versions of ourselves. To be able, honestly, to look in the mirror in the morning and just say, I'm at complete peace and satisfied with who I am and my place in the universe But because that doesn't come often, if ever, for most people, and it only lasts a few moments even when it does, we end up spending the entirety of our life going around knocking on various doors and hoping that when they open, if they do open, that what will be in front of us is the answer, the thing that completes and satisfies and fulfills that inner gnawing hunger that every one of us carries with us. I could come up with a list of 10 different doors that I've knocked on in my lifetime. I mean, first and foremost is the whole issue of sensuality. You might call it pleasure, which always proves to only be a momentary refuge from the mundane and the painful. I'm not saying that pleasures aren't pleasurable. That would be stupid to say. I've had people say to me, I don't understand why people would abuse drugs. My only response to them is, have you ever tried them? And I'm not saying that by way of recommendation. You just have to understand that that's why it's so hard to quit when you start. Because it gives such a momentary escape from the pain of life. That every time life gets hard, you want to go back and take the easy way out. But like everything else, it doesn't last. That the drug addict may get high and each time he or she gets high, there's less of a high to the high so that they have to up the dosage and they have to go from smoking it to shooting it to eventually just overdosing on it until it kills them. Sensuality is, a, is misleading. Because it's something that if you live to serve it, you will find before long that you become enslaved to it. So what about something like friendship? Friendship is one of the most wonderful things that we can know in life. And yet no matter how dear someone is to us, that intimacy can never reach deep enough to completely satisfy or alleviate our loneliness. Some of us have this idea, if I can just get that right circle of people around me who will love me unconditionally, don't exist, love me unconditionally, (laughs) then I would be happy, and even if it happened, you wouldn't be. Because you'd still have to realize that you're weighed in the balances and found wanting, and they can never go deep enough to meet that need in your life. Then there's the issue of, well, (laughs) if I had just had a different set of parents, I wouldn't be so screwed up right now. <laughs> to which I respond, oh yes you would. <laughs> They're sitting there saying, if I just hadn't had that kid, I wouldn't be so." <laughs> you know, the point is that whether your parents were wonderful or your parents were horrible, as Robert Bly lamented so clearly, he said, there's never enough father that I can never extract enough So that many of us live our lives thinking, well, if my parents had been better parents, you would still be struggling because they don't possess the capacity to meet the need in you that you have. They can't satisfy that hunger of your soul. So what do we do? Well, what I need to do is vote for Bernie and get a free education. That's that's the answer right there. (laughs) Education is the answer to all my problems, except... Talk to somebody who is truly educated and you'll find they'll tell you. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. (laughs) The less sure you are of what you do know. That's why Solomon said, Be warned, my son, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. At the end of the day, what increased knowledge teaches us is that there is so much beyond our ability to grasp why Robert Jastrow who in his lifetime was the leading astrophysicist in the world said towards the end of his life I have come to the unmistakable conclusion there must be a God and all of his mates said well he's gone senile now but he just said there's no other way to explain it. Well and then there's success. Success is most highly esteemed by the people who have never really achieved it. But those who have will tell you something different about being successful. Ted Turner was one of my favorites. He says, Success is an empty bag. Because once you got it, it doesn't fulfill its promise, it doesn't satisfy. Or there's money. <laughs> Dave Roper has a great line. Money talks, but mostly it lies. (laughs) He says, having enough is never enough. Or there might be fame. Fame is fleeting. Don't we always say that? If you don't think so, then just... Watch an American Idol judge or a, a you know, voice judge or something like that. People who get to the end of their career. If you're a musician and you're successful, do you know that 99% of them have a 10-year career span? And then from there, they just hope that after 25 years, they can have a reunion concert? You know, that hell freezes over and they come back <laughs> and do it again. And then what happens? Then you die. Then there's marriage. Um, believe me, marriage has got to be one of the best things that God ever created. But let me say this and listen carefully what I'm going to say. Being happily married is an oxymoron. <laughs> because if you're not happy before you get married, you will not be happy after you get married. Marriage does not make people happy. I'm sorry if you're engaged. I didn't mean to mess it for you. But marrying this person isn't going to suddenly transform your world. You will not wake up the day after and go, (laughs) ah. Well, my wife came close to that. (laughs) Ah. Close to that. But I mean... it's. And the worst part about it is that if it is wonderful and is happy, it's only till death do us part. It doesn't last. And the same way with children. Children are a wonderful source of happiness. I mean, how... I think sometimes how empty our lives would be if we didn't have children and how much fuller our bank accounts would be. LAUGHTER I remember my daughter my wife very naively saying to me one time I can hardly wait till the kids are 18 and out of the house. <laughs> it should have been closer to 26. <laughs> and even then they've come back several times. <laughs> they're beautiful, they're wonderful. That's why, you know, God's reward for children is grandchildren. You get the pleasure without the burden. But kids are hard work and sometimes there's great pain that we go through as they struggle with life. And even regardless of how wonderful it is, one day they're going to leave you. I know some of you are at that place where you're thinking they'll never leave. (laughs) They will. (laughs) They will. So what do we shoot for? We shoot for retirement. And then I came across this little poem reads this way, it says, "'Since I've retired from life's competition, "'each day is filled with complete repetition. "'I get up each morning and dust off my wits "'and go pick up the paper and read the obits. "'And if my name isn't there, I know I'm not dead. "'I get a good breakfast and go back to bed.'" So what do we fall back on? We fall on our memories, don't we? Memories. I used to think that the longer you live, the sweeter your memories would be. The truth of the matter is that, not that you don't have great memories, but you have more regrets than you have memories. Roper described, he says, we look back on our memories and they're strewn with the debris of our sin. My dad used to always say, if I had my life to live over again and then he would share what just happened in the last five minutes. (laughs) And I began to realize rather quickly that he had more regrets than he had successes. And I often had to say, Dad, you're really pretty successful. I mean, why don't we focus on that? Well, if I had my life over again, I probably would. (laughs) The simple fact is that As T.S. Eliot put it in one of his poems, he says, the shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm which once you took for virtue. You look back and say, if I had been wiser, if I had just been more discerning, But you aren't and you weren't and you won't be. Because you see, God has put you and I in this place that always leaves us wanting. It's not by coincidence that the most iconic rock and roll song of the 20th century was sung by a In my opinion, a musically challenged band led by a vocalist who had bitten off half his tongue as a teenager and explained his weird enunciations. You know what it is. I can't get no satisfaction. Why does a song like that resonate even today? Because it really becomes emblematic of the way life is. That we keep on going from door to door to door. And I, I probably haven't even knocked on your door yet. I don't know what door you're knocking on. And you're thinking, if I can just get in through this way and get this passage taken care of, then life is going to be sweet and it's going to be good and, and I'm, I can just relax and I can enjoy. You know, It's like a friend of mine was telling me, he says, I was having this conversation with my dad about my golf game. He says, I'm kind of frustrating because I, I, you know, I get where my, I, my, I'm hitting my driver really well and, and then I, I, I work on my chip shots and as soon as I get my chips right, I start losing my driver and, and then when I get the chip shots right and I get my driver going, then I start working on my putting and then my putting gets really good but then I can't chip anymore. And I, He says, I just feel like one day it's all going to come together and his father who had been golfing all his life said, no you won't. I think if anybody, look at Tiger Woods. I mean, there's something always going wrong, right? But that's really kind of parabolic of life in general. There's always something that's falling apart, breaking down. That's why we have the second law of thermodynamics, the principle of entropy, that everything's going from a state of order to disorder. I was looking at paint peeling on my house you know, I'm a bored guy. The TV wasn't working. What? Look at it, paint peeled on my house. And I thought to myself, why does the paint peel? Why doesn't it just get thicker with time? Why does it adhere more with time? Why does it go that direction? It's because that's the kind of world we live in. That's the kind of mirrors that are on the walls of my bathroom. That the paint is peeling. The top of my head. Do you know, it's like me going to the barber the other day and said, can you trim it up a little on the sides? I didn't realize the top was a side. <laughs> I looked in the mirror and said, well, I feel like a jarhead. I'm ready for military duty. But if all of that weren't hard enough, then there's the, the relentless stalking of death. <laughs> Tom Howard put it really well. He says, we will soon enough, here's, here's a good thought for your day, we will soon enough be a heap of ruined feathers and bones indistinguishable from the rest of the ruins that lie about. So have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Dave Roper put it so, though, he says, most of life is one long effort not to think about dying. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, it's, when's the last time you were taking a drive and you said, hey, let's just swing by the funeral home and see what's going on? (laughs) How many people want to go walk the cemetery with me? I mean, that's one of my bad habits. I like to read tombstones just to get some ideas, you know? (laughs) But the famed atheist George Bernard Shaw (laughs) summed it up rather cryptically. He said, the statistics are very impressive. One out of every one person dies. (laughs) And there's no escape. Or is there? Or is there? As I said, most of us spend the entirety of our life knocking on one door or another, one right after another, But G.K. Chesterton said something regarding this that really connected with me. That's why I've repeated the last two sermons, three in a row now. He says, even when men knock on the door of a brothel, they're looking for God. We are born for His love and we cannot live without it. He is that one thing for which we all have been looking all of our lives. He's the one thing that we've been looking for. I don't know what door you're knocking on. I would just ask you to ask yourself, how's that working for you? How's that going? Because that's why when the angels asked the women who came to the tomb that morning, he said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Why? You see, we can spend our entire life looking for life where there is no life. And at the same time rejecting the only place where life can be found. That's why Jesus said, instead of spending your life knocking on doors, just stop for a moment and listen because he says, behold, I stand at your door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will feast with him and he with me. You see, the stone was rolled away not so Jesus could get out of the tomb. It was rolled away so that we could enter it. In a sense, what Paul said, that when we are baptized in water, we are Lord in the likeness of his death only so that we might be raised in the likeness or the representation of his resurrection. Because he's alive. And you can only know that he's alive once he lives inside of your heart. That's the only way you can know that he's alive is once he begins to live inside of your heart then nobody has to tell you he's alive, you just know. I shared recently how that when I prayed that prayer, Jesus come into my heart. I didn't even know what I was praying. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know what anything would happen. I just know that that's what the pastor guy told me to do. But in that moment instantaneously I knew I could stop knocking on doors because Jesus had come and knocked on the door of my heart and for the first time I opened it up and I let him in and I became alive. I was no longer just living. I was alive. We want to give you the opportunity to have that same experience. And we want to do it because you believe that Jesus is knocking on your heart. In a few moments we're going to begin baptizing people and those of you who are planning on being baptized this morning I encourage you to start making preparations for that. I have no idea what that means. They just told me to tell you that. But I also want to say that if you're here this morning and you decided, you have decided even now that I want to entrust my life to Jesus Christ, then I would just encourage you to come and be baptized. We have a change of clothes if you get wet, you know, really seriously. But we invite you to respond because one of the most important things for us to do is not to ignore God when he's speaking to your life that maybe on a level it's not something logically you can reason out. Maybe, just like the disciples, you're a little bit terrified about the prospects of actually surrendering your life and letting Him have control of your world. I was talking with one of my sons the other day. saying He was listening to a sermon. The pastor said, God doesn't expect anything from you. He said, do you think that's correct? I said, well, I think it's partly correct. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants everything from you. He wants the entirety of you. And once you realize who He is, you're more than willing to give it because you find that He is that one thing that you've been looking for. So if that's you, I invite you to come up. If you want to get baptized, you can just come and get in line and be baptized. If you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody about that, myself and some others will be up here in the front. We'll be glad to do that while the worship and the baptism and everything else is going on. But as we prepare for that, what I'd like you to do is just take a moment and we're going to run a short video clip and invite you to follow along.